0: are infinitely loved podcast i'm sam i'm Lindsay,
1: and i'm Coos.
0: we believe that loving yourself is the key to transforming every aspect of your life and it's our hope that these conversations bring you one step closer towards embracing this truth
1: on this week's episode of the you are infinitely loved podcast we get to talk to someone whom we admire and look up to jonathan fields Between his podcast, Good Life Project, his latest book, How to Live a Good Life, and the best camp in the world, Camp GLP, he has impacted the lives of many people around the globe. We are thrilled to have him talk to us about his latest project, The Sparkotypes, how self-awareness is a practice of self-love, and how everything always starts with dark chocolate. I hope you enjoy this conversation.
0: Well, welcome everybody to this week's episode of You Are Infinitely Loved. We are so, so thrilled to have Jonathan Fields with us today. And to begin this episode, I want to just begin with a public acknowledgement and a little bit of gratitude because Jonathan Fields' Good Life Project was something that played a really, really pivotal role in completely changing my life. So, I was lucky enough to stumble across the video series of Good Life Project when it was still a video series before it became a podcast, and that was in 2013. And in 2013, it was a pretty uh, dark time in my life, I guess. I was struggling with a lot of things, didn't really know what I wanted, and was feeling quite alone and quite lost and devoid of a lot of meaning and a lot of purpose in my life. And one of the things that I did during that period was I decided I would put myself on what I called my conscious inspiration diet, where I would look for positive sources of media because I'd spent a decade working in news media surrounded by a lot of negativity and it was changing the way that I looked at the world and the lens that I had on the world. And at the very, very beginning of just searching the internet for positive sources of media I found Good Life Project and it was literally those video stories that reignited uh, like a spark in my life and completely changed the trajectory of my whole life and I just can't even yeah it's such a dream to me to realize that six years later Here I am getting to interview the very interviewer who collected such stories that built a body of evidence for me to prove that a good life was possible and I could change my own. So thank you so much for the impact that you've had on my life and the lives of thousands of others, I'm sure. So I just want to start the podcast with that public acknowledgement of the role you have played in my
2: life and in changing it. So can we just actually end the interview here? Because it's only going downhill after that oh, introduction.
1: How can we top that, right?
2: Like the only thing I can do now is just let everybody down, including you. Oh, please. Never. Talking about self-love.
3: Um, this is a podcast about self-love, Jonathan. Oh, right, 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 please right, right, right. Please don't, Please me, don't.
2: Let me switch out of self-loathing mode. Okay, I'm back, I'm back.
3: To our listeners, we did warn Jonathan that it would be a gush fest, <laughs> And we would try to limit it, but we're all fangirling out right now. Even Coos. Even Coos. <laughs> yeah. Well, I
2: just, I just so appreciate you guys having me on for this conversation. So.
3: Well, we're so thrilled. So, one of the things that we started thinking about when we started this podcast is we noticed that you don't actually use the term self love often in your podcasts. I think Sam remembered using <laughs> that term with Susan Piver. But, other than that, it doesn't seem that that's a term you use often, but we feel like your work is just soaked. It has to be um a foundation of solid self love to be able to produce what you're producing
2: it's i mean it's a really interesting observation, and I was just sort of scanning my memory banks to see if I can remember using it in another conversation. The only other conversation that I remember distinctly using the the term is actually back in the days when we were filming, in the very early days, um, when my guest was someone named Gala Darling. Um,
0: oh, and yeah. The,
2: and the reason we use that term is because that's specifically what she was about. That was Radical her thing. Radical self-love. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, we, so it kept popping up, largely because she kept bringing it into the conversation. But I think for me, I'm fascinated by love, by the dynamic between human beings and I think maybe the thing that I tend to um spend more time on is self awareness, mm-hmm. which is in I guess in a way, you know, a bit of a precursor um mm-hmm. or a prerequisite for self love because if you have no awareness of what's happening within you or around you, it's hard to even get to that next level of understanding how and when you might love yourself. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, for us, like at the heart of all of your work is this real emphasis on like deep self-inquiry and really getting to know and understand yourself and what makes you tick. And like you said, I really do believe that is a precursor for self-love because to know how to treat yourself well and understand what's loving and kind for you, you have to have that kind of understanding of yourself. And so out of interest, have you always had a really strong sense of, of self-awareness and enjoyed that kind of process of self-inquiry? Or do you remember like when it started for you, if you weren't always that way?
2: Oh, no, this is not a long-term thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I was your average, you know, like weirdo kid who was just off in the world doing his own thing. But what I will say is that probably my first awareness of a curiosity around the human condition and who we are and why we do what we do um, was in... Probably college. Um, I I always knew I was a little bit of a different kid. In college, I got sort of more interested in psychology and and probably in the context of behavior change and performance. And at one point, I actually contemplated um, going and getting grad degrees in psych and becoming a, um, a performance psychologist because mm. I was somebody who I think was. Oddly wired to set a goal in my head, and to this day, I'm not somebody who really gets stuck very easily. Um, I would deconstruct what I thought it took to get from where I am to where I want to be, mm-hmm. and then I would just put my head down and do it. You know, so I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with a lot of abundance financially. I, I mean, we were fine, but there were always things that I aspired to have or do mm-hmm. that were outside of you know being easy to have or do. And I would just figure out like what's the work that I need to do to make it happen and I think I got curious about how I was doing it, and I got curious about how other people did did do it, and also why so many other people didn't why so many people um hold up you know a set of aspirations and ideals that they would love mm-hmm. to live into in the world, and yet don't resim and in fact very often don't even take the first steps to make any of it happen. And I realized, you know, I, through through my my you know being in life and being kicked around and going through a lot of years, you know, it's not that simple. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things. And I happen to come up in a very stable, loving, supporting household that let me go out and take risks and feel good. And and a lot of people haven't. So we all sort of arrive at the moment in life where we have to take action or not um, with a different history that, you know, either enables or to a certain extent, disables or paralyzes our ability to take those actions. So I think in college is when a lot of the early seeds started to touch down, Mm -hmm. but then probably became kind of like ran from it, not ran from it actively, (laughs) but just it wasn't really front and center. And my sense is it really probably touched down in a much more significant way in my life um on nine eleven, you know 2001 mm-hmm. where i'm a new yorker and so i was here that day and like anybody else who is a longtime new yorker and who was here that day um somebody you knew wasn't alive at the end of that day mm-hmm. and for for me it wasn't somebody who we were super close to but they were you know certainly a friend and it was a a, a father of two young kids um the the youngest partner in the firm at the top of one of the towers, where the entire firm was um, no longer in existence, and just never came home that day. And that was also on the eve of me um, opening what I hoped would become a substantial yoga center in New York City and a community, in the sense of place of healing and movement and and teaching and community. And it, it really, I was deeply emotionally affected. I was also married with, um, and we had a three month old baby. So there were just a lot spinning in my head. And, you know, the realization that 3000 people didn't go to work that day, not expecting to come home really. Um, it just, it didn't leave me, you know, and it really, it, I think it reconnected me with this more existential exploration of who we are what matters to us how we spend our days and it's even though it's morphed and changed since then it's never really let go it became a more persistent part of my life and my seeking Um, but it's always been underneath almost everything that i've done since then
3: jonathan that is so powerful to hear that i feel like um even when you mentioned earlier how growing up with a pretty stable loving home kind of set a foundation what would you say to people who maybe don't have that um, kind of foundation? How did, how would you recommend they look towards self love, maybe without having that prior, um, you know, childhood where they've learned it naturally?
2: Yeah, it's such a good question, and I wish I actually had a better answer to it. But what what popped into my head was um, quite literally in a conversation that I just taped for um, Good Life Project yesterday, where I was talking with somebody who actually came up um, in a home where um, they really struggled to feel like they were loved from one parent and the other parent was was absent, was not there. And um, struggled a lot and tried a lot of different things and eventually found a bit of salvation and elevation in discovering a new group of people, of peers who accepted this person as they were. Mm. Didn't ask them to change in any way, shape, or form. You know, like They were... You know, it's and very often, you know, when you're younger, it's like, you know, it's the freaks and geeks, it's the people mm-hmm. who are not necessarily mainstream <laughs> doing everything, you know, the way that's supposed to be done to fit in. And um, I, I think if you're not getting it from sort of your you know, immediate family satellite, then part of the, the inquiry is because I, th- I think that we learn to love ourselves very often in relation to the way that we interact with others.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, My sense
2: is it's probably a really hard thing to do in isolation. Um, So whether we're either working with an individual that helps guide us through a process, um, maybe it's a therapist or maybe it's just somebody who you come to trust or a mentor. um, But I think finding belonging, finding a sense of community, knowing that you're in relationship with a group of other people who see you as you are, accept you as you are, and don't ask you to change. Um, goes a long way to planting the seed to being able mm-hmm. to see yourself in a way that you feel that you are lovable um, and um, there there may be other you know much more therapeutically accurate ways to do it, but that's just sort of a, I think the lens that I would bring to it
3: It's almost as if acceptance has to come before you can really dive into self awareness you know to have that safety of I'm accepted for who I am. And so, therefore, I can discover um, what makes me unique and what makes me tick differently than other people when you're not, um, you know, trying to be a part of the herd
2: for safety. Yeah. And I think safety is the real, that's the key word in everything. A lot of right. people have asked me over the years like, how do you build community? How do you create experiences or gatherings where it feels like complete strangers get on planes from all over the world and just show up? And somehow magically, within a matter of minutes or hours, you're like, "Oh my gosh! Like we're besties." You know how do we feel so comfortable? (laughs) Which is literally what
3: happens (laughs) with Sam and and And, Kusanai. And
2: and what we realized is that inadvertently, what we were doing was we were we had figured out sort of the essential elements to create a container that was safe. And if you did that. It almost didn't matter what else happened after that because once people feel safe, they'll drop the facade, they'll let the guard down, they'll start to become open and vulnerable and becoming open and vulnerable is the gateway to genuine relationship. But if you don't have that feeling of safety, you will never allow yourself to peel enough of your onion in front of other people that they will feel compelled to want to know more and want to share more and the relationships always stay pretty superficial. Um, so you can't learn much about them. They can't learn much about you. And neither of you can learn much about your individual selves. So safety, I think, is such a huge part of it. And if you don't feel safe in your family of origin, you know, then you've got to find it in some other way, shape, or form
1: how do you start cultivating the safety jonathan i'm just thinking about you know whenever we want to start a smaller community local community in our neighborhood or even at work with a team to create this uh, psychological safety environment for everyone how do you even start that
2: well i mean as with everything else with me everything starts with dark chocolate (laughs) oh perfect so Absolutely. <laughs> I, I think that's really, well, although you honestly, the men with sweets, <laughs> right? That's kind of the answer to everything in life, you know. But safety is certainly you know, part of it. Um, It's a really good question because we have—I almost feel like we've we've inadvertently stepped into doing it in ways that we didn't really understand, and then spent years deconstructing what we were actually doing so that mm-hmm. we could figure out how to keep doing it and not just make it a one-time magical mm-hmm. experience and in fact we would start to double down and do more and try more things um, and our, our goal you know like for example for the camp that we ran for five years and you guys are campers mm-hmm. so um, every year we were trying to up the the game of how what can we do to create this feeling more quickly so that people can drop into that zone more immediately spend more time there and go deeper faster and have a a deeper sense of connection and joy more quickly and spend less time kind of posturing and orienting themselves and figuring out how to get there. So mm-hmm. we, we kept trying things, but fundamentally I think there are a couple of important things. Um, one is everything always happens from the top down. So if you're creating the container, if you're you know, in any sort of leadership role on a team, at work, in a community, whatever it may be, you've got to model whatever behavior you're hoping other people will adopt. It doesn't matter what you say. If you're not actually modeling that behavior on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, um, everything else fails. You know, so part of what we would try and do on every level with our team is um, work with people who model that and model that to them. You know, so if, if we had a core leadership team of a couple of people You know, we would want to model that to the first ring of people who are, quote, management level. And then by us doing that, then the hope would be they would then turn around and model it to the next ring of people. And then they would turn around and model it to the next ring of people. So there's a sense of coherence in behavior that ripples Mm. out and people see across the entirety of the experience oh, yeah, like this is real. You know, this is not just. Um, words on a page. And beyond behavior underneath that, I think it's becoming very clear about values, um, what matters, what doesn't, what are the rules of the game we're all playing together, and then stating them. you know mm-hmm. so having some form of statement of values or creed or here are the rules, here are the expectations, here's how we all want to play. Um, and allowing um, people to be crystal clear about that before they raise their hand and say yes you know so mm-hmm. if you're doing this yeah. within a company be really clear about the values and the rules of the culture that somebody might be stepping into so that they can understand what that's about and then i think part of it also is really understanding honoring people's different um social orientations and mm-hmm. creating safe ways for people who are wired differently, to move into community together. Um, so what we know, for example, um, so I'm an introvert. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm antisocial, although depending on the day, you never know. <laughs> of course, again, with dark chocolate, that solves all social problems. But you know, on the, the rare day, once a year where I might not have some, Then uh, I have to rely on other things. So for me, I'm I'm definitely more on the introverted side of the spectrum. And interestingly enough, Stephanie, my wife and business partner, um, is as well. And she was sort of like the real head of this experience, where we gather 400 and something people every year for three and a half days. So what do we? So we, I think, we're acutely aware of the fact that so many other people in our community were wired similarly, and we Mm -hmm. were so aware of the fact that when we would show up at other events or gatherings or conferences, they're really, most of them are designed for people who are uh, naturally more extroverted. They're kind of Mm -hmm. wired, you know, they're they're almost like structurally built for extroverts to get the most out of the experience. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. said to ourselves, okay, what would we need if we showed up somewhere else to feel immediately safe, to feel immediately seen, to be Mm -hmm. immediately felt and validated and immediately like we could talk to anybody. And we started to build the structures, you know. So, so when you first would show up at this one hundred and sixty-acre, you know, immersive communal living experience, um, you know, you park in the parking lot or you get off a bus, and we have a crew of people that are waiting there to immediately say hi, to take you individually, to start a conversation, to walk with you, to give you a hug, to blow giant, you know, goofy bubbles with you, to so it's literally from the the first touch point. You know, we want you to feel like, oh, I can, ex- this is going to be okay. You know, like, I'm going to be okay. I don't know anybody here and I'm going to be okay because they're, they're going to take care of me. You know, like, immediately I know somebody. And then you're from being there a, on. you so many good memories here, Jonathan. Yeah. Like we, we, <laughs> we all a little teary. <laughs> we, <yeah. laughs> and the, and the goal is just to build on that, you know? So it's like, and as you're walking up, you know, the first day, I think the first year we did this, I can't remember if we kept doing it. You know, we had okay. So, what can we do to give people permission to walk up to complete strangers and talk to them, where they don't have to feel like you know, like they're doing it themselves? It's their job to walk up, and they can they can point to something else that's making them do it, which kind of really changes the social dynamic. So, we created human bingo cards where you know, instead of colors, you would have twenty five spots, and you have to find one person who's read three books, one person who speaks French, one person who you know, like has swum, you know, like a thousand meters or something like that. So every, all of a sudden everybody's just rolling around, um, walking up to random people saying, hey, have you done any of these things? And so it was a lot of, it's, it's funny. Like a lot of, a lot of it was um, a tremendous amount of attention and focus on designing for social dynamics and, um, and interaction and safety. And the goal was to make it feel really natural and easy um, for people who were participating. But knowing that underneath it, there was a huge amount of structure and intentionality, uh, all in the name of creating safety as quickly as we could.
1: Oh.
0: Well, you certainly pulled it off. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it is, yeah, hands down, my favorite event that I've ever been to. And I really, I, I remember like all of the, the values being made so like so clear and that real conversation open conversation around uh, introverts and extroverts and it's something that I've been lucky enough to it really had an impact on on me and where I work here in in Phuket I'm lucky enough to work at a wellness retreat and in some ways um, there's parts of that experience that really echo (laughs) the community vibe of Camp GLP it's like it's a very holistic experience and people come in and it's communal eating, everybody's eating their meals together at the same time, it's a big table. It's like there's lots of moments where we're trying to facilitate connection but one of the things that was kind of lacking and that I was able to really get from Camp GLP was this real kind of um, care for the introverts who might find mm-hmm. that incredibly confronting to have to be, you know, well, to know that they don't have to eat their meals with everybody, for example. So, I think it was the intentionality was so like was so beautiful, and it made for such a special experience. So, the other thing I want to say about the Camp GLP experience and the way that you chose the leadership team um, and the people, like um, when I think of um, Amelia and and Casey and the role that they play, those two strike me as like such brilliant role models of of what it means to be. Unapologetically, you. Yeah. And to really, really like just be yourself, and that was one of the it's one of the chapters in, in your book How to Live a Good Life that I really loved on um, joy, essentially, and like uh, Elizabeth Gilbert and Brené Brown being mm. two of the podcast interviews where you know there was just so much joy in those interviews, and and one of the quotes that I loved from your book was, "Before you can choose joy, you have to choose you." That idea of like being unapologetically you, and I just feel like that was so beautifully role modelled in the in the people that you chose. Um, was that part of the reason why you why you chose people like that to, oh, uh, yeah. to I lead mean, that experience?
2: So fifty percent that we wanted to create that permission, and fifty percent they are both raging extroverts, <laughs> <laughs> and they created a buffer zone around us. So, so that you know, like when I was needed to you know, be in my sort of serious introvert mode and just refuel and step away from humanity, I knew that
1: you know, everybody
2: <laughs> would be taken care of, they were going to get all the love and all the interaction, um, that they needed by you know, like Amelia and Casey and the whole crew. Um, you no, know, that Rachel's whole thing was a very intentional. Word.
3: Reaching is a very strong word and yet it's very fitting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cool. Um, To change direction a little
0: bit, we want to kind of talk about the more recent part of your work, which is sparkotypes. And I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit more about what sparkotypes are and and who they're for. Because, again, for us, we can see a huge connection between sparkotypes and and self-love, funnily enough.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So sparkotypes are a set of archetypes. Um, you, could, you could look at them as your unique source code for work that fills you with a sense of meaning and purpose, um, allows you to feel fully engaged and fully expressed in the way that you contribute to the world. And the, so these archetypes are something that I've have, you know, probably been working on, honestly, for, for years and years and years. And I've always been around the question, how do we, how do we wake up in the morning um, and figure out what we're here to do and then go and do that work in a way that leaves us. So that when our heads hit the pillow at the end of the day, we just kind of think to ourselves, I, I, I spent the day doing what I'm here to do. That was a really good day. And if I can repeat that tomorrow and the next day and the next day, that will add up to a really good life. And you know, the truth is we all spend so much of our lives working, and I use that term broadly, that may be the thing you get paid to do, that may be the thing you do on the side, that may be the thing that you do as a caregiver to somebody else, but the, so much of our waking hours is consumed um, by this thing. and Very often when we go through education, you know, we're taught how to get a job, how to find the right job, how to find the right company, the industry, how to become an expert in a particular body of knowledge or set of skills so that you can rise up in a particular path. But we're never really exposed to a process that teaches us how to figure out who we are, what matters to us, what fills us, and what empties us, what gives us this sense that they we, we are doing the thing that we're here to do, it's a deep and enduring sense of purpose. And I started to, you know, I've thought about this and over a lot of years, I've developed process around it and worked with so many individuals, founders of, of businesses and companies, teams exploring these things. And what I realized a couple of years ago is that at the end of the day, what almost everybody is coming to me asking is what should I do with my life? And when they ask me that question in particular, what they're really asking is how do I find and do work? that is the fullest expression of who I am. And I realized that I'd been doing all this research and building process largely for entrepreneurs and founders and companies, but I had never turned that same, um, sort of scientist lens out into the bigger question of work for everybody. And I I realized, you know, there's a much bigger need (laughs) sort of in the general population and, um, I started, you know, I, I'd spent already a lot of time looking at research. There is, you know, there's academic research on purpose and on engagement and stuff like this. And then on the other side of the, but but a lot of it is very inaccessible, or it's not clear how to actually apply it on a day-to-day basis. On the other side of the spectrum, there is a lot of spiritual or metaphysical um, writing or literature or process of inquiry. But again, very often for completely different reasons. That's not very accessible for a lot of people, not infrequently, because a lot of it also is bundled with sort of a, a requirement that you buy into a much larger body of teachings or dogma that a lot of people don't uh, don't buy into or don't want to. They just They want simple, practical tools to help them figure out what is the thing inside of me that will fill me with the feeling that I want to get when I go to and come home from work every day. And is there some core driver within me that I can satisfy? So I started doing that research myself and sort of drawing from my own personal experiences, from working with, at this point, thousands of individuals and organizations, and looking at the academic research and the spiritual um, development and seeing, could I put together a practical set of tools that would help people identify their unique imprint or source code or what I call sparkotype, the archetype that sparks you? and i didn't actually know if i could when i started (laughs) but what i found out over time so i started but you know by saying well you know if you ask any person um what they're here to do or what's their purpose very often they have no clue or if they do they're giving a very superficial time-limited answer to the question and if you keep asking somebody and what's driving that and what's driving that and what's driving that you rapidly go from billions of unique answers down to 10 fairly universal archetypes and that that wasn't by by plan or design i didn't i wasn't like oh let me just pick 10 and you know make it that number that's sort of where (laughs) (laughs) where i've landed in the research so far and um and then we spent pretty much the entirety of last year building an assessment to see if we could actually create an assessment that would allow people to move through it fairly rapidly and get something that was useful you know is it the ultimate answer to every question they have and will give them the specific job they should do in the world nope you know, But what it's designed to do is elicit the deeper source code, the more universal archetype or imprint, so that you can then turn out and say, okay, now I can look at my current work and figure out where it's aligned and where it's misaligned. And I can now look at every new opportunity that comes my way and be in a much better place to understand on a much deeper level exactly what to say yes or no to and why. Hmm. When
1: you said your source code, Jonathan, um, wh- one question that I have right now is: Do you think the sparkotype is this a nature versus nurture thing? Can you have a sparkotype this, you know, when I'm in my thirties, and then have a
2: different one when I'm in my fifties, or do you think you'll have the same one? Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's a question I've thought a lot on right now where i land with it and again the scientist in me says always hold yourself open to the possibility of being proven wrong which i do but right Mm. now the way i'd answer that question is what i've seen um, is that for most people um it becomes you know fairly imprinted and identifiable or relatively early in life and barring some sort of very substantial trauma um it stays the same now It can be confusing because it may express itself in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different jobs, industries, hobbies, pursuits. And and that may make you think it's showing up in different ways or it's changing over time. Um, You may also build really substantial skills in a different area um, and become really good at something that actually is not an organic expression of your sparkotype but because you become so skilled at it, you kind of want to believe that that is your imprint because you've devoted so much of yourself to becoming good at it, and being good at it makes you feel good. But if you're really being honest, and you kind of say to yourself, "Okay, so if if given the opportunity to do anything, you know, is this the thing I would do for the rest of my life?" Um, most people if if that is the reason they're doing it, if it's basically purely out of a sense of um temporary competence, um, their is probably gonna be no. So from what I've seen so far, um, I really I do feel like the imprint touches down early in us. I have no idea how or why. But I just kind of know that we tend to be wired or drawn towards um being fulfilled by a certain essential nature of work. And then it stays with us though it expresses itself differently. I think very often in different parts of life. So for me, my, my primary sparkotype is a maker. So the fundamental work of the maker is to make ideas manifest. I open my eyes in the morning and I want to create. You know, I, I want to make stuff. Um, that shows up as books, uh, events, experiences, media, um, uh, companies, physical items you know i built a guitar with my hands last year um as you do as you do (laughs) so it's it's it expresses itself in so many different domains and channels and through so many different tools and forms of media and mediums um and and some of them i you know i may be more drawn to for certain amounts of time than others or you know they they satisfy something in me which is a bit different But fundamentally, like the through line is that it's the process of creation. It's the making of something that I love to do. And if I find myself doing something where it becomes much more maintenance mode or much more complex systems and process mode or much more, you know, like organization mode, I quickly lose interest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and th- this also describes so much of the classic the, the, the classic startup founder, especially in the tech world, where it's mm-hmm. all about you know like like idea, uh, launch scale, build sell, idea, launch scale build sell. A lot of people are like that's insane. Um, and for most people it is for most people it actually is not right for them, but the, but some of them, if you're a pure maker, it's it's the process of idea to launch, which makes you so happy. And the real motivation to get to the exit is actually because it buys you back the freedom to devote the vast majority of your energy to making the next thing. Mm.
3: You know, Jonathan, I'm really curious about, um, you know, I think we've kind of touched on how self-awareness can lead to a more loving relationship with ourselves and then vice versa. More so, The more we love ourselves, the more we can experiment with who we might be. Um, how would you feel like the sparkotypes could help someone have a more loving relationship with themselves? Yeah,
2: it's a great question, right? Um, so really just riffing off of what you just said, there's the better we know ourselves. So, so I feel like we do a certain amount of violence to ourselves when we spend the vast majority of our waking hours doing things that conflict with our essential nature. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the exact opposite of self-love. It's self-harm to a certain extent. right. Yeah, Absolutely. that's the way that most of us live our lives, you know. So by yeah. learning more about who you are, what matters to you, what doesn't, what fills you, and what empties you, what you need in the world to be okay, it allows you the the it gives you the self knowledge to much better understand what to say yes or no to in a way that um, nourishes you. And to me, you know, that helps you step. Further away from choices that cause harm and further into choices that lead to self fulfillment or self love.
3: I can't tell you how much I've used um, building a value statement from your How to Live a Good Life book. Oh, cool. Um, I've used that over and over with clients, and it really is such a powerful tool of learning how to practice self love because, you know, loving yourself can be this kind of hypothetical, like, I don't really know what that means. Like, it sounds great. It sounds woo woo. And yeah, we should all, we should all do that. Right. But what are the steps to get there for me? That's going to be unique for every person. And so I think even being able to identify um, what are my unique values and how was I made to be? And that's my jumping point for all decisions. And I'm telling you it has been such a magic question for me to ask my clients and and myself. Mm. <laughs> um, and so it's just really interesting how I think that ties in really nicely to what you're doing with Starkotypes now.
2: Yeah, no, that's great to hear. I love that.
3: yeah, it's it's an exercise that I am I often use <laughs> use
0: with my clients. It's actually in one of my talks. Um, I get to do it every week here in Phuket and it's so like it really does. It changes the way that people make decisions in the way they view their lives. And it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful tool. Uh, nice. So yeah. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was self-care because for us, like self-care is a big uh, component of self-love. And I'm just curious as to like, what are the things that you do in your life uh, as an act of like to take care of yourself? What's your kind of self-care moments in your day?
2: Well, again, you guys know where my starting point is: dark chocolate. chocolate. Dark chocolate. <laughs> right, it really is everything, you know. That's ninety percent of my daily self-care is dark chocolate.
3: Jonathan, <laughs> well, I'm starting to worry about um, some addiction behaviors.
2: <laughs> yeah, Should we talk? I know, there may people have tried interventions, but I have overwhelmed okay. every okay. attempt so far.
3: <laughs> um,
2: no, so for me. Um, the heartbeat of my self-care is what I do first thing every morning, which is um, breathing exercises and meditation. So no matter where I am in the world, no matter how dog tired I may be on any given day, whether I wake up you know, super early or late, um, I wander out of bed. I am not social. I'm not human. I'm not remotely friendly. I'm not a morning person <laughs> at all. But I'm
3: feeling for your wife here right now. <laughs> is she okay? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
2: Um, so, but I also wake up before everybody else so nobody like, you know, I don't have to be oh, good. <laughs> So I'm always the early one up in the house and, uh, and I sit down and I do about five minutes of breathing exercises or pranayama, which is something a sort of a, a, a a blended, um, set of breathing exercises that I've adapted over the years from back in my yoga training days. And, uh, and those are designed to largely reset my nervous system. Um, so your, your rate of breathing actually has a direct correlation with your, um, your state of, um, either fight, flight, or freeze, you know, your uh, sort of like nervous system state of agitation. And what I like to do is sort of, is, is breathe my way into a very calm, focused state first thing in the morning. So I don't do an energized thing. Um, I just want to get to a very grounded place. And from there, um, I'll drop into uh, meditation. Uh, for me, most days it's a very—it's um, actually I've been evolving it lately. So, for a lot of years, it was very traditional, breath-oriented mindfulness practice. Um, there are really three, three key elements to mindfulness. Um, one is one is focus. One is opening, and one is dropping. Most people uh will focus on the focus meaning you Mm -hmm. pick uh, your breath as an anchor and you kind of just direct your attention to it and as it wanders you notice that and you bring it back and that's really important and it affects your brain in a particular way which is super beneficial the the other two elements so are super beneficial too and so the opening is basically it's almost the exact opposite so rather than focusing on a single um thing like the breath as an anchor you completely just sort of open your attention, you open your awareness to any and everything. So um, I'm basically imagining that my, you know, all of my senses are on and active and I'm letting everything in and I'm not focusing on or grasping at any one thing. I'm just opening myself to all sensory input, all experience. And then part of that is the third thing, which is dropping. And this happens in both Focusing and opening meditations, which is that when you notice that your mind has now wandered off somewhere else to like what you need to do or this thought spinning, whatever it is, it's noticing that and then consciously letting it go and saying, "Let me go back to whatever the more central part of the practice is, whether it's a you know a, a focused or an opening stance." So I will, I will sometimes spend an entire session just in one of those what I've been doing lately is kind of um, developing my own blended practice based on my breathing rate. And um, so it's it's almost like um, interval training within my practice <laughs> where I, um, <laughs> I'm moving between different phases based on my breathing rate. And I also found that my breathing rate becomes very slow during my practice, not because I'm forcing it to, but because it kind of naturally tends to do that. Um, and in fact, the breathing exercises that i do leading into my meditation have my breath slowing down so i'm generally only breathing twice a minute and it's actually it's actually oh, very wow. comfortable um it sounds odd but yeah but um yeah. but when you do it it actually you know takes time i don't kids don't do this at home <laughs> <laughs> but over a period of years your you know your body and your immune system and, and your nervous system you know sort to uh they tend to dial themselves into a mode where it feels very comfortable and it's not stress inducing for me. It's actually very peace inducing. So that's how my day starts. Sam. Um,
3: Sam Coos, did you just try to slow down your breathing
2: twice a minute? <laughs> yeah. As as like I that. said, do not try that at home. Also not <laughs> recommended immediately after loading yourself up with dark chocolate. No they're they contrary the indicators. <laughs>
3: That's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing yeah, and that then, And us.
2: then two other things I'll just throw in really quick. Um, nature. Uh, so I live in New York City, but three blocks in one direction is Central Park and two blocks in the other is the Hudson River. And I am out in one or, of those two places as often as I possibly can because nature is a huge reset for me. And also, mm-hmm. I adjust my workflow so that as long as the weather's okay, um, pretty much every meeting that I have is a walking meeting and pretty much every phone call I have is a walking phone call very often in the middle of the woods in Central Park. Wow.
0: Now I need to figure right. out how to make walking podcasts. Yeah.
2: Well, so as 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 we <laughs> speak, I have like a special rig <laughs> set up on my computer yeah. where
3: you're actually in Central
0: Park. I'm
2: actually in I'm in my I'm in our podcast studio, but I'm wearing a headset very specifically because it has a broadcast headset mic, which is different from our standard fixed studio mics, and has this really, really long cord. So this whole time, I've just been sort of like pacing and walking around. So I've been moving this entire time. Really? Mm-hmm.
3: Whoa. Interesting. Wow. Huh. Now the question is, are you in your pajamas still? Uh, <laughs> I wish.
2: Sadly, I had a meeting this morning, so I actually had to get dressed.
3: Oh,
2: yeah. Okay. It's my burden, but I'm Okay. <laughs>
3: You know, I feel like this would be a good time for us to end this conversation, to respect your time, because, you know, Jonathan, we we joked about this being a three, four hour podcast, um, and we have to be really careful and mindful not to go there. <laughs> so, you know, one of our favorite podcasters always ends his podcast with a very thoughtful question. And so we'd like to ask that question to you. Oh, no. No. Jonathan, to bring you back full circle, when we say to live a good life, what does this mean for you?
2: You mean besides dark chocolate, right?
3: (laughs) That can be the answer. If that's your answer, are you sponsored (laughs) by a dark
2: chocolate company? Oh my gosh. We've been working on it for years. Nobody's stepping up. It's so annoying. Like, come on. Uh, for me, you know, it's interesting. I've asked hundreds of people who are so accomplished in nearly every domain in life this question over the years, and and the answer is always actually interestingly different. Um, but there are some, certain common patterns that emerge that uh, that I, I tend to buy into as well. Um, so and and it really kind of goes back to my three buckets. You know, a good life um, is about cultivating deep, meaningful, enduring relationships, loving and belonging relationships, spending as much time with those people as you possibly can. It's about optimizing your state of body and mind, and it's about doing meaningful work in the world. It's about waking up and feeling like you're doing the thing that you were here to do, and you're making meaning along the way.
0: Well, that is a pretty good answer. Um, sounds like a good life to me. And dark chocolate. Thank you so much, of course, and dark chocolate. I don't think I've ever met anyone that is as addicted to chocolate as I am, but potentially yeah. Potentially, we may, have, we may have to have a
2: chocolate <laughs> off when we're in the same company, country together. Oh, my
0: goodness. Yes. <laughs> Challenge <accepted>. Challenge acceptance. <laughs> thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan.
0: Thanks, everyone. Before we let you go, we want to tell you about some exciting news for the You Are Infinitely Loved team. This summer, we will be holding some in-person events in Portland, Oregon. So if this is something that interests you, please come on over to our website at www.youareinfinitelyloved.com and sign up to our newsletter because we will be releasing all of the details very soon. We really hope to see you in person. That website, again, is www. Dot you are infinitely loved.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode.